Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. And so there's a question that is begged from the statement that the gospel is something that saves you. And it's from what? What is the gospel saving you from? And we just saw in the passage there, 1 Corinthians 15, the hint of it. It says that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. And this is what Jesus came to save us from. If we go all the way back to his birth, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was Jesus' mission from the very beginning, to save his people, the people of Israel, from their sins. And the grand mystery of the New Testament that unfolds as you read is that this salvation from sin is extended to all of the world, where everybody can experience the salvation from sin. And so what does, the say, this, what does Jesus, the gospel, save you from? It saves you from sin. But there's another question that kind of comes from this. What's the problem? You know, what's the big deal about sin? Especially if everybody does it. What's the big deal about sin? What is there to be saved from? Is saving me from sin saving me from eating a plate full of cookies? Or saving me from eating a cookie laced with poison? Which one is it? What am I being saved from? What is being offered here? To answer this question, we're going to have to understand what sin is. You know, one of the things I've really come to appreciate as I've learned more and more is just how comprehensive the Bible discusses the topic of sin. You know, it talks about it in varying nuances and describes it in varying ways to help us to really feel the effect and understand the gravity of sin. It talks about it in a couple of different ways, and we're going to look at two dominant ways that the Bible discusses sin this morning. And the first one goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Here we have the story of Cain and Abel. You may recall it. Cain and Abel are the children of Adam and Eve. And Cain's offering is rejected, but Abel's is accepted. And God comes to Cain here. And and fun fact, this is the first time we see the word sin. God comes to Cain and says this, If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well... Sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. I just saw the thing saying, I was speaking too loud. Sorry. (laughs) Sin is lurking at the door. Here, the description of sin is as if it is some sort of beast or some sort of predator that seeks to have you you're supposed to master it but it wants to master you it wants to own you and it is crouching and it is waiting to pounce sin is described here as something that you want to have you want to have nothing to do with as if it is some sort of oppressive monster that just wants to get you 
And this description of sin carries out through, throughout, the, throughout the Bible, even into the New Testament. Jesus describes sin in a similar way. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? The description of sin in the scripture is talking about it as something that enslaves you, that wants to own you and keep you shackled. That's what sin is. It is like a force or an entity that only wants your harm. And so this is part of the problem with sin that the gospel seeks to save you from. From something that enslaves you. From something that only desires your harm. But it is not, this is not the only way that sin is talked about in the Bible. Another way that it's talked about, we can see if we go back to that story with Cain and Abel. After Cain has that interaction with God where he tells him that sin is lurking at the door, he ends up going and killing his brother. And God approaches him in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. It says, and God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to endure. Here in the story of Cain and Abel, we see sort of a two-edged sword of of sin, how it is this monster, this beast that wants to have you and wants to own you and wants to destroy you, but it is also something that you participate in. And because you partake, you become guilty. And you receive a punishment that is too great to endure. The punishment of sin is great because it matches the beast you've given into. It is a violation that is worthy of the curses that we read here. And this description of sin as something that, that makes you guilty carries on throughout the Bible as well. Going to Psalm chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, we have a Psalm of David where he is talking about his sin. He says, How blessed is he whose wrongdoing is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is a person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as the dry heat of summer, as with the dry heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my guilt. 
I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Sin is something that makes you guilty. It makes you guilty to the God who created you and loves you. You become guilty before him as you have violated his good and perfect character in law. You become guilty. And there's a part of this passage that I think we can, uh, that's kind of common to human experience. It talks about how David here desires to be forgiven. How blessed is the person whose wrongdoing is forgiven. He seeks to have God's forgiveness. And notice this description here in the middle where when he did not confess his sin when he carried his sin with him when he carried his guilt it talked about he talks about how his body wasted away that he had this feeling that was dreadful and awful and i think this is a common human experience to understand this feeling of guilt and shame for at least the last decade or more it's been pretty common to hear or to read on social media or something like that you need to forgive yourself you need to forgive yourself oh you just you just need to forgive yourself and people say this sort of thing because we all understand the guilt and the shame that we feel because of the things that we've done that have hurt ourselves, that have hurt other people. We all walk around and we understand that there is something that we need to be forgiven of. And so people say, oh, you just need to forgive yourself so you can be freed from this feeling of your body wasting away because of the shame that you feel. Because of the sin that you've committed. But just forgiving yourself will always come short. Because your sin is not simply against yourself. Your sin is not simply even against the person you wronged. It is against the God who made you and loves you. And any other form of forgiveness, any other source of forgiveness will come short of relieving you from this shame. Another passage, last one on this point, is in Romans chapter 1, 28-32, where it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It is the ordinance of God. Some versions say the just decree, the righteous decree of God, that those who practice these things, that those who participate in sin are worthy of death. 
And I think this is a reminder that we should make us all sit up in our seats and pay attention. Because you may be sitting there and you may not resonate at all with what I said in Psalms chapter 32. You may not feel as though you are rotting away on the inside because of the shame and the guilt you ought to feel. But whether you feel it or not, you are worthy of death. The guilt is there. Whether you feel it or not. And it will catch up to you because you are guilty before God. And sin is no light matter. I mean, if the essence of love and goodness says that you are worthy of death because of your sin, you know it's bad. You know that you are not in a good place. And what you have participated in is disastrous. And so, what is the problem with sin? Well, the problem with sin is that it enslaves you and it makes you guilty. It causes you to bear shame and become guilty before God. The problem of sin is enormous. That's what it is. It's huge. And I think it's something that all of us can understand as well. It doesn't matter, you know, who you are, what group you belong to or whatever. We all can understand the problem of sin. Maybe you wouldn't use that word, but you can understand the problem and the enormous problem that sin is. Because just going through this world, following things on social media, listening to people talk all over the place, you hear people complain about things like greed and injustice, and unconscious bias, and laziness, and murder, and xenophobia, and sexual misconduct, and sexual immorality, and egotism, and deception. It doesn't matter where you look. People are complaining about these things. People consider these things to be awful or disastrous or to be that we need to get rid of these sorts of things. Everybody looks around and sees ills in society, and it's all because of sin. Sin is the fundamental problem. It is the problem that creates all other problems. Every other thing that you would look at society and say, what is wrong with this world? Sin is to blame. There is no one it has not touched. There is no one who has not given in. There is no one who does not feel its effects as you feel the brokenness that is in this world. Sin creates it all. And we've all given in to it and participated in its destruction in James chapter 1, 14 and 15, it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it, brings, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Sin brings death. The picture that the Bible describes for us about the problem of sin is that it gives us even the worst of the possible consequences that we face in this life. Sin brings that into this world. And it's something we must all face. Sin 
brings death. And just as the Bible has a very comprehensive and nuanced way of talking about sin, there's also a variety of ways that it talks about the kind of death that is brought into the world because of it. Because it talks about it in a physical way, which is what we think of when we think of a funeral. It talks about it in a spiritual way, which is what you think of when you think about being separated from God, the source of life, an eternal death. And there's also a way of describing it's the death and life in a way that I call futility. And we'll look at a passage for that. But let's just look at a few. There's a variety we could look at. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, we already looked at this one. It talked about the sin resulting in death. But if you keep on reading on down into verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we can see that the kind of death that sin is going to bring is the one that is certainly physical, but it is also eternal if it is not escaped. It is a sin that lasts. It is a spiritual death away from God. Another passage that speaks to this is in Revelation 21.8. Before the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers, and sexual and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their parts will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. For those who continue in their sins, enslaved to it, shackled to it, and giving in again and again and again, there is waiting for them the second death. But the death that comes from sin, it doesn't just come then. It's ongoing for you presently. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 18, 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of of Christ. Notice the kind of life that Jesus is saving them from, a life of futility. This passage it reminds me of what Jesus is recorded as saying in John chapter 10, where he says that he came so that we might have life and we may have it more abundantly. Jesus came to give an abundant life. And apart from him, you don't experience that abundant life. You experience this futile way of life. A life that is only worth being called dead. A life worth, not worth living. There's no value in it. There's no hope in it. And there is only destruction awaiting you. That is the life that is in sin. That is the life that God seeks to save you from in the gospel. What does he save you from? He saves you from sin, which enslaves you and makes you guilty. And the gospel saves you from a dead life, your eventual death, and your eternal spiritual death. That's what the gospel saves you from. And so does that sound like good news to you? That sounds like some stinking good news. That's some awesome news. 
that I can be saved from the thing that enslaves me and only wants my harm, that you can be freed from death, freed from the fear of death because of the gospel. That's good news. But how does the gospel do that? How does the gospel save us from these things? I mean, so far in 1 Corinthians 15, what we've read is how the gospel is about the fact that Jesus died and he rose again. How is the death and the resurrection of Jesus going to save you from sin and death? How is that going to happen? Uh, as I was thinking about this question, I began to realize that the, the Bible's answer to that question is just as comprehensive as its description of sin and death. I mean, there are a variety of ways that we could answer this question. How does the gospel save you from sin and death? And I just kind of wanted to show you that. I just, off of my own head, okay, I didn't even do a bunch of looking around. I came up with these passages, okay? I don't know how many there are. I didn't count them. But I got these passages, and I ignored the Gospels and Acts and the Old Testament. And I only focused on passages that mentioned the death and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So what I'm trying to tell you is there's probably about 50 more at least, okay? Maybe 100 more is more accurate. There's a lot of different ways that the Bible talks about how the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you from sin and death. And we're going to look at a piece of that picture this morning. Go into Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, For he, that's God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here it's saying that we are rescued. You know, we need that rescue. You're enslaved to sin. You've got nothing but darkness in your life and ahead of you, but you can be rescued from that through Jesus through the redemption that he offers, the forgiveness of sins that he offers. And if you keep on reading here in Colossians chapter 1, it goes on to explain this further. In verses 19 through 22, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. How does the gospel save you from sin? Here in this passage, we see how it rescues you from that domain of darkness because through the blood of Jesus, you now have peace. It buys your peace. You were hostile and alienated and engaged in evil deeds. But through the blood of Jesus, the, it's like the terms of the peace treaty have been met. And you can be reconciled to the God who loves you. The blood of Jesus takes you from being alienated, hostile, and engaged in evil deeds to being holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's what Jesus does through his death. He buys your pardon and he makes you clean. 
Another passage that speaks to what Jesus' death and resurrection does is in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, where it says, He, that's Jesus, who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. Not only does his death deal with our sin, but his resurrection does as well. Because if he just stayed dead, it'd just be a really sad story and we'd have no hope. But he was raised, and so we have hope. And we have this hope because his resurrection was for our justification as well. Because he was raised from the dead, he's declared victorious over sin and death, and he buys our vindication. We can be vindicated from this terror that we are in because he rose again. Our vindication and our justification is seen in the resurrection of Jesus, in the power that was on display to give us victory as well. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. In verse 53, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable puts on the imperishable, and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come what the, about the saying that is written, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is a victory over sin and death. The two problems that we have, Jesus reigns victorious over those two things. And he says, you can have that victory as well. We gain the victory over our two biggest problems because we have a God who has the victory and shares it with us. It's like if death and sin were bullies and Jesus went and took them out so we can pass on by. We have victory because of him. And so how does the death and the resurrection of Jesus deal with our problem of sin and death? Because his sacrifice buys our peace and makes us clean. And his resurrection brings us vindication and victory. To put it in another way that it's like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the gospel is the powerful and wise working of God to provide redemption for humanity. The powerful and wise working of God to provide redemption for humanity. Because apart from the gospel, you're lost. You're dead in your sins. You have no hope. You stand guilty before God. You are worthy of death and you will carry your shame for eternity. Apart from the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you are stained with your sins and you are in great need of repair. And so the question you must ask yourself is how do you enjoy this salvation? How do you enjoy 
the salvation that Jesus has to offer through his gospels. What do you need to do in order to enjoy the benefits of God's rescue? What must you do? Now, I, I think it's really beautiful as we consider what Jesus has done. What did he do? How God put on flesh and became a man. And how he went to the death trusting in God that he would be raised again. That's what Jesus did. And if you want to enjoy the rescue and the salvation that Jesus has to offer, he says, follow in my steps. Follow after me. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want to enjoy the life, the rescue, the salvation that Jesus offers through his gospel, he says, follow me, do as I have done and die. Die to yourself. Do not cling to this wretched and awful state that you find yourself in. Do not cling to this mortal life and this flesh and this world that only brings you temporary pleasures. Die to that. And I will give you a life worth living. Die to that and I will give you a life that goes on for eternity. Die to that and follow me. And I will give you life. That is what Jesus says. Follow me. Stop doing what you're doing. Following wherever you're following. Following whoever it is you're following. Following your own hearts or desires or whatever it is. Stop that and follow Jesus. Die to yourself and live for him. And you are invited to begin that today. Looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and through 13, it describes how you can start that death and resurrection today. In Colossians 2, 11 through 13, it says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision performed without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice this. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings, you were dead in your wrongdoings and uncircumcision in your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings. Baptism is described here as the process in which you undergo what Jesus went through. You begin to follow him and you die. A part, a part of you dies. Your sin, your guilt, your shame is nailed to the cross with Jesus. And you are buried with him and you raise again a new person. You're born again, and you're freed from all that. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer carrying your guilt. You're forgiven. 
That old person is dead. And you are alive to God. So do you want to enjoy the rescue that Jesus has to offer? Do you want that? Do you want to experience his salvation? Only you can answer that question. Do you want to stay in your sin? Do you want to stay in your dead life that has nothing going for you beyond it? Or do you want to enjoy the rescue that Jesus has to offer? Because God, Jesus, wants you to enjoy his rescue. And that's why he invites you to do so. If you want to enjoy his rescue, you need to talk to someone. And when church is over, talk to me, talk to someone, talk to somebody here if you want to enjoy God's rescue. Or you can come and talk to someone now by sitting on the seats here on the front as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com. Calm.